Welcome back to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome novelist and short story writer Jane Ann Phillips, author most recently of Nightwatch, a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction. Jane Ann's first book of stories, Black Tickets, published in 1979 when she was only 26, and it won the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. Featured in Newsweek, Raymond Carver pronounced Black Tickets, quote, stories unlike any in our literature, a crooked beauty, and established Jane Ann as a writer in love with the American language. She was praised by Nadine Gordimer as the best short story writer since Eudora Welty, and Black Tickets has since become a classic of the short story genre. Since then, Jane Ann has written an additional collection of short stories and six novels. Her latest, Night Watch, is considered part of a trilogy of war novels alongside Machine Dreams about Vietnam and Lark and Termite about Korea. Others include Quiet Dell, Shelter, and Mother Kind. All of these works have garnered prizes, praise, and critical attention. Today, we're focusing on Nightwatch, published in September, only weeks before the latest Middle Eastern conflicts. Since its publication only a few months ago, it has gained even more relevance today. We'll talk about writing a civil war story that speaks to our times, both domestic and foreign, the research required of historical fiction, how to organize it, and how you know you've done enough, accessing the voices of another time, writing difficult scenes, how to manage the element of surprise for both the reader and the writer, and so much more. Jane Ann Phillips, welcome. Thank you. I thought before we dive into the novel, if we could just go back, like all the way back to childhood and where and how you grew up, because I feel like those seeds are so often informative of who novelists become. And you're so steeped in West Virginia and have always written about that part of the country. So I thought we could just start there with kind of what those childhood years looked like. And if you were a writer, even back then. Well, my mother believed, well, jokingly, a little bit jokingly, that I was the reincarnation of her mother, my grandmother, Grace Boyd Thornhill. And she was a poet. That is, she was a completely untutored poet. But my mother had one of her poems that she wrote as she was coming up over the hill after giving Aunt Jenny her insulin shot. The cannon was much more rural then, and they lived in a big two-story house with a big front porch that was torn down to build the current McDonald's. So it's the ground is invested with a lot of, I would say, spirit. And I was a very avid, kind of addictive reader. I read constantly. My mother used to say that she bought books for all of us, but my brothers just threw them down, and I constantly was looking for more to read. I think, you know, I began writing poetry when I was in high school, and as my influences got better, I got better. And when I went to graduate school at Iowa, I actually applied both in poetry and fiction and was turned down in poetry. And I said, well, after I get there, I'll find my way into the poetry workshops. But I just found that there was something about the prose paragraph that felt very secretive and loaded. We read information, technical directions, newspapers. All of these things are written in paragraphs. 
I think that because they're so accepted by our minds, what's inside a paragraph can just kind of mainline into our consciousness. And that's the advantage that fiction has. I think when we're reading a poem, because of its physical shape on the page, we're always aware that we're reading a poem. But fiction can sort of sneak into our consciousness and feel like, in in the case of a first-person voice, I walked across the street. It begins to be us inside that voice. And I tend to write in, when I use third-person, very close third-person point of view, so that I hope to sort of capture the reader's attention in a way that makes it feel as though they're not only reading the prose, but they're inside the prose and actually experiencing what's going on. I think the reader brings a kind of associative vocabulary to anything they read, things the writer never knows about, but they operate to strengthen the connection you know, between the writer and the reader. And that's that's pretty miraculous. I'm so glad you talked about poetry because you can just see that throughout your prose, your study of poetry. Do you still write any poetry or have you left that entirely behind? I don't write it, but I sure do read it. And I've turned out to have a son who's a poet, Soren Stockman, who published his first book called Elephant last year. So that's another very close tie for me to, to the world of poetry. And I find it just sharpens my instincts in a way to read poems. I heard you hitchhiked across the U.S. when you were 19, like in 1970 or something. And I thought, don't try this at home, kids. But I thought, what a way to to study human nature. I was wondering if, you know, some of those experiences either found their way into your later work or if that was sort of a formative experience for you as a writer. I don't know about that. I always had the same type of perceptions, no matter where I was. And I certainly didn't take that trip to write about it. Unfortunately, I didn't take notes. It was just something I wanted to do. And I formed a relationship with another woman who wanted to do the same thing. And it was a very dangerous, crazy thing to do because by 19... Oh, when was that? Um, Must have been 73 or something the flower child era was over and uh, there was no glamour around uh, hitchhiking. And and it's certainly not something I would ever want anyone to do. And when did you become interested in war stories? Was that kind of always there or did that come later? I think because I grew up during the Vietnam era when we saw war on television so frequently, I've always been very much aware of it. I had friends who were killed there and certainly friends who served there and came back with problems that they'll have to deal with for the rest of their lives. So that was our war, my generation's war. But one of my characters, I think it's in Larkin Termite, Corporal Levitt says, it's all one war. As though the weapons change, the supposed ideology, the reasons, the cultural impasse seems to change, but the wars for the soldiers fighting them are very much the same. The fear, the wounds that never heal. And I've wanted to sort of look back at wars I did not experience in any way, but that were connected to me. They've all been civil wars, if you if you think of it that way. That is North and South Vietnam, North and South Korea, and in America, the North and the South. 
So for me, these three wars are are very much connected, and I wanted to try to see if I could get inside each one of them with very specific characters who were living the experience of the war as an atmosphere and a reality. Have you in any way come to think of yourself as a, I don't even know what it means to be a war novelist, but do you think of yourself that way? And and I guess if you do, I wonder if you give language to what that means. I really don't think of myself as a war novelist. I mean, these three books are a kind of trilogy, and I very much see them that way. But I've written about a lot of other things, too. And I prefer to see myself as a novelist who writes about war as opposed to a war novelist. Did you know that these were always going to be a trilogy when you set out that you were going to write about these three wars or did? (laughs) Do you now look back and say, ah, I was doing a trilogy? I think around the time I finished the second book, I realized that it was going to be a trilogy because I had begun to have ideas about a family who were living at that time. I think there are certain archetypes, or my own vocabulary of archetypes, that sort of run through all my books. And the connection between mothers and daughters, the connection between siblings, the wild child element that I can see tracing back through some of my books. All of these things, you know, they they lead me forward, but always into a different time and a different situation. So first, I think I'll let you introduce the book. If you could lay the foundation for this, and then we'll we'll kind of jump off from there. A mother and daughter are seeking refuge in the apocalyptic war years after the Civil War. That leads them into a journey that goes on for years, really, as their relationship changes. The cover is almost a, a metaphor for the novel. You see on the cover a buckboard moving in front of a a massive building or institution. And there's a kind of swirl of a black, it almost looks like a map with stars marking certain spots. And as the book begins, a 13-year-old or 12-year-old girl is being rushed into a buckboard by the man she's been told to call Papa. She's a bit of an unreliable narrator because there are big blanks in her memory of the past, especially two and a half or three years. She's been taking care of her mother and taking care of the three babies her mother has born over the past two and a half years, one a set of twins. Suddenly she's rushed into the buckboard and they're driving a kind of day and a half, almost two day drive to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, where Papa says, Mama will have her rest and cure. And that's that's where the book begins. But there are big absences. Connie Lee, her, her name, has not ever met her father. She's only been told that he joined the war before she was born, and they've never heard any more from him. So the book just sort of unspools mysteries. I mean, the main characters are her mother, she calls Mama, whose name is Eliza, And Dervla, a woman born of sort of two or three generations of Irish immigrants to the U.S., and her people first came as 
bonded laborers who pledged their work for 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years to pay back their passage from Ireland. They lived, you know, in the North, but also throughout the South. And we follow these three characters and their their incredible bonds to one another through all the separations and migrations, separation of their family toward, well, I won't say what where we end up, but <laughs> it's the kind of journey that many people surrounded by a war, it's that kind of journey that, that people take as refugees, as people that are migrating from one place to another, looking for one refuge after another. And set in West Virginia and Virginia. That strikes me as just the exact right place to set this because West Virginia was one of those states that was so on the border of, of the Civil War and mired in it and confusing. And it's such a novel of secrets and memory, mismemories, lies, all of these family lore that the characters are both deceiving themselves with and trying to protect each other from. I'm aware that even educated people don't know the origin story of West Virginia. They have no idea that West Virginia seceded from Virginia and fought for the Union during the Civil War. I wanted to make that really clear. So tell me a little bit about how the seeds of the novel first came to you. Was it through character? Or was it through situation? Was it through this place? Tell me how the novel presented itself to you. You know, all of my books start with actual prose that I've written, and I don't know what story the prose will end up being. And in this book, the first thing that I wrote was the beginning of the novel, when Connolly is being rushed into the buckboard. I needed to find my way into voices that would be believable in that time period, the way that they talk, the phrases they use, the way their daily lives were, and what a huge uh, undertaking it was to survive then off the grid, as almost everyone did, especially people living up in the mountains, where they spent most of the day finding, cooking, hunting, growing their own food. And that included finding their medicine in herbs and plants and knowing how to make medicine of these things. That was really the beginning. And I believe I wrote the, the first section of the book. Now, a friend tells me that I was thinking about a mother and daughter at an asylum many, many years ago <laughs> before <laughs> a couple of my other books and I think really, I think of my work as a continuum that one book sort of prepares you to write the next, even though you're not thinking of it that way. But I think I was lucky with Nightwatch because that one section that I wrote without knowing what the rest of the story might be, so much was inside it. Should I read the very beginning of the book? Let's do that. I'm just going to read a, a page or so. Connolly, A Journey, April 1874. I got up in the wagon and Papa set me beside Mama, all of us on the buckboard seat. Hold her hand there, he said to me, like she likes. Sit tight in, keep her still. I saw him lean down and rope her ankle to his. Talk to her, he said. Tell her she'll like it where she's going. A fine, great place, like a castle with a tower clock. You'll like it, Mama, I said. Tell her about them palms. Palm trees and pots, Mama, and velvet sofas, like in a city hotel. 
Don't call her mama, he said. Don't you see how she's dressed? He got the dress from a widow man who was giving away his dead wife's carpet bag and clothes, petticoats, silk underthings, satin bodice and jacket with bell sleeves. You know what to call her, he said. Don't fail in it. You said call her Miss Janet, though it's not her name. It is her name now. Her old name won't do her good. Call her by her name. I will, just in a minute. Catching my breath. But I put my hand on hers. She was clasping her knees so hard I could feel her shake. I was out of breath from carrying the babbies to the neighbor women. One of them would take the boy because he was walking and talking, and the boy twin if she got both boys. The other woman would take the girl twin, so that was a separate trip, pulling the drag with the bags of flour and salt. I guess we were going to be gone some days driving over to Weston. Papa, who's going to feed the chickens while we're gone and find the eggs? That neighbor woman, he said, that took the girl twin. Mama never named the babbies. We only called them so, the babbies. And she nursed all three. The twins weren't but 12 weeks. Talk to her, Papa said, like I told you. Her name, he said. So that's the beginning of the book. It's so funny that that is the first thing you wrote because there's so much of the novel contained in that first, you know, that first section that I don't know if if then you set out to unpack all of the layers of everything that's in there. It's just amazing that you would have known all of that at the very beginning and come back to that. Yeah, it just spooled out with hearing Connolly's voice. And often when I write something that starts a novel, there's the whole situation inside it. It's a very active situation in which so many things are going on. And Connolly is a character. It's her daily life. She doesn't wonder at the strangeness of giving away these children. And she doesn't think it's permanent. But it sets it certainly lets the reader know that this child is is trapped in a situation that she doesn't control, and yet she is so resolute in trying to protect and care for her mother. What year did you set out to write the novel in earnest? I ask this because of kind of what what's going on in our own world in well, the last there's seven years. War. There's always a war, right? <laughs> right, right. But I I took about eight years to write this book, which isn't really an unusual period of time for me. There's often a lot of research uh, that needs to be done. And with this book, it was doubled because, of course, I knew about the Civil War, but there was there were so many specific things that I needed to study, you know, diaries, photographs, scholarly books, woods, woods lore, how people actually lived during these years. I mean, the book is begins in 1874, nine years after the Civil War. And then there's a central section that moves back in time to 1864 during the war. We've met the characters and we see their situation and, and what's happening to them. But the 1864 section takes us to the sort of crux of their experience. And we understand a little bit more about who they are because we find out what has happened to them to make them that way. And you have backstory even from there. So yeah, your management of time in this is amazing. And I was kind of wondering if in your office or your notes or how you keep track of time periods, because you've got the war, but you've got what happened before the war and sort of all of these characters' origin stories. Tell me a little bit about organizing, research aside, tell me just character-wise, organizing all of that material of each character's origin story how they came to be, where they came to be. Because I imagine it's a big cast of characters and it's a lot to to keep track of. 
Well, I'm not so interested in keeping track. I want to be deeply inside the passion and the reality of the story. I would say that, you know, three-fourths of the way through, I begin to kind of assemble a timeline that goes backwards. But I really kind of impose the organization as one of the last things. I mean, I, I made a very specific timeline of Connolly's age, how old she was when certain things happened. But I've always wanted my books to have a kind of organic organization that comes from the writing itself. I never want any of it to feel like offstage narration or the writer took a break or or whatever. I I like to stay inside what really feels alive in the prose. And if I have to go back later to change things or explain things, I, I can do that after I've kind of finished my first draft. I mean, I wrote three drafts of this book. In terms of the research, how much of that do you do up front before you ever begin the writing process? Or do, do you do it kind of alongside as you need it? I really do it alongside. And I do it at the same time that I'm doing the writing, but I'm I'm doing a lot more research than writing for most of the process. I mean, Ken Burns' Civil War series was really, really important to me. I must have watched it. I don't know. I just watched it on loop almost. And I was so grateful and thrilled that he gave the book such a generous quote at the end. Another book that was, or, or four volumes of a book that were so important to me were published by the Library of America, and it's called The Civil War in the Voices of Those Who Lived Through It. And it's one volume, one thick volume for each of the years of the war. It's not only military leaders and their letters and newspaper coverage of battles and diaries of both Southern and Northern women trying to live through the war, maps. I also went to the sites myself. There is one long battle scene in the book that features the Battle of the Wilderness, which to me seemed a particularly horrible devastating battle among all the others because it took place in a in a wilderness of forest and weeds and briars trees that were 3 to 6 inches around that had grown very tall and were so numerous inside this wilderness that a man could not walk between them you, you had to turn sideways to walk into this wilderness and at a certain, the battle began on May 2nd and ended on May 5th, 1864. I believe 29,000 were killed. But the strange, the most horrible thing about this battle was that there was so much gunpowder in the air that the all, the entire wilderness caught fire and men who were injured were simply consumed, you know, by, by this blaze. And the idea of the battle of the wilderness, because it was all... It was all a terrible wilderness, no matter where those battles took place. Speaking of that scene that you depict in the book and a few other scenes, talking about difficult scenes, sometimes I talk to writers and I feel like the scenes that are the most difficult to read aren't always necessarily the most difficult for the writer to write. And there are, you know, a number of those difficult scenes here, whether it's sexual violence or war violence or other types of hard material. And I was wondering if we could talk about kind of how you approach those scenes, but if it's true that some of the scenes that would surprise us as readers that we would think 
are the most difficult for you to write, in fact, may or may not be? Well, it's difficult for me to write in general. <laughs> I'm right. really a very slow writer. And I guess I'm just, I censor myself before I even get things on the page. I do find those difficult scenes to read also difficult to write. Although they have a momentum for me that I'm following the scene. I don't start out beforehand saying, well, this, 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 this will happen. I'm following the scene itself as it unspools. And I used to tell students when I was teaching that the writer has to climb into an asbestos suit and walk through flames, that no matter how difficult a scene is, you must be inside it to to be the witness that translates it to the reader. And this book is very much about women, three generations of women, and assault on women has been weaponized in every war from the very beginning. Even Connolly is aware that you know, the, the ragged deserters and con men that she sees in uniform who have made it to the top of their ridge in the mountains, no matter what uniform they were wearing, they were desperate, dangerous men. It wasn't a question of whose side they might be on, because this happens. <laughs> and it was so much a part of the experience of women in the Civil War, no matter which side they were supposedly on. Do you get through a scene and ever decide it's too much, you know, and you have to pare it back a little bit for for readers? Or, or do you just continue to hold your hand to the flame, <laughs> your asbestos suit to the fire, and come what may? Well, I think you have to be as strong as you want your characters to be. And you have to stand behind your work. And as long as I feel it, it describes uh, a reality of something that could happen, and it's, it describes the characters specifically, I think you have to just trust that inside the book, in the context of the book, the reader will stay with you and suffer what the characters suffer, because it all builds toward the resolution at the end. How much did you know going into this? For example, did you know sort of the the resolution? Did you know the big kind of plot points of the novel before you set out to write it? Or were those also discoveries for you along the way? Because, you know, like every wonderful novel, there's a lot of surprising discoveries for the reader. And I'm always curious about how much surprise you allow yourself as writer. I did not know the actual resolution because the resolution is is really in the words at the very end of the book. No fair ever, ever skipping ahead in this book. I wondered for a while if I would finish this book because I really didn't know how to end it. You know, I didn't want to end it necessarily because it really was something I lived inside uh, for all those years. But I retired from teaching just as the pandemic started. And as the pandemic went along, I felt as though this book was almost my refuge because it was another terrible time that no one involved in it. No one knew where it would end or if it would end. And I found it to be a refuge to write about this world that, after all, is past. And we know how how it was resolved. I mean, I think it was resolved very messily in a way that didn't settle the issues involved. 
I was going to say, do we know it was responsible? Yeah, the issues are still with us. That's one reason I was drawn to writing about the Civil War. We, we just find even in the some of the extreme online or, you know, the, the dialogue is even mentioning another Civil War. Right. And it's just so very dangerous. I mean, I'm hoping it would be nice anyway if if people began to think more about the Civil War and the fact that it took almost 100 years after that war to begin to actually deal with civil rights. And then being tossed back again now. It's such it's a lesson very, in history yeah, repeating. It's a, it's a dark time. Even though the sun is shining today, we are in a dark time. And it, that, for me, is also very reminiscent of this war 150 years ago. We'll be back with more from Jane Ann Phillips talking about Nightwatch in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. A note to visit our Patreon page if you enjoy these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made or you have learned any writing tips or tricks that may have inched you closer to publication. This is a way to support the show. You can find out more by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. We also have joined an affiliate page with bookshop.org to offer the books from our authors. You can buy Jane Ann Phillips' novel up there, as well as other authors who have been on the show. Their books are offered up there. We also have included some of our favorite books, some of our writing and craft books that we both recommend up there. You can find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Jane Ann Phillips talking about Nightwatch. Tell me a little bit about the title and when that came and, and how it came. Well, Nightwatch has a lot of ramifications for me as a concept. Namelessness is a theme that runs through the novel. Your name is the first thing they take from you. And if you are trying to hide for your own safety, they often find you by your name. People lose their names and gain other names throughout the novel, especially Nightwatch. Nightwatch is a job, actually, that, that one character has for a time in the institution, the asylum. But when you think about the words Nightwatch, uh, you think about people around a campfire deciding you'll be the Nightwatch until 5 a.m. It refers to those people, and I think both Dervla and the one known as the Nightwatch, who is her adopted son, no matter the threat or loss they suffer, they simply are moral fulcrums in a way. They will always move to protect or defend even though they lose their names, they protect, defend, and try to survive to a time when everyone can say their names. If you think about Rembrandt's painting, The Night Watch, it's a sort of very dark background with men dressed in red cloaks and huge hats. And everyone knows the title of that painting is Night Watch, but they might not necessarily know that these men who are presented in the painting are the night watch of their cities. So it's the idea that we all maybe need to think of ourselves as a night watch. That is, we need to be aware of, of what's happening around us and look for the truth beneath what's presented as truth and try to protect not only you know our environment, but the children and grandchildren who will inherit both its, its problems and its beauties. 
At what point did that title come to you in the process of writing? Oh, I had a lot of other titles. Uh, it was one of the early titles, but there were a lot of books with these words in the title. So there were many other possibilities. My first, my first uh, title was Trans Allegheny, and no one liked that title. But I think Night Watch really fits, and we all finally, that is my editor, et cetera, we all finally decided that it really was perfect for the book. And then when they came up with the cover, it was clearly the best title. So in terms of the research, because there is so much, and it almost feels like a nonfiction fiction piece, because you weave in so many wonderful photographs, real life places. I think Dr. Story was a real life person. Is that true? No, Dr. Story was invented. Thomas Story Kirkbride was a real person who really had so much to do with the mental health state asylums, one asylum, one huge asylum for each state. And he was the author of, of a book published in, I think it was 1854, on the construction, organization, and general arrangements of hospitals for the insane. And it was a very thin book, of which, of course, I have a copy. And it's very much about how to build these asylums. The Trans-Allegheny Asylum in Western Virginia was first, was started in 1858, before the Civil War. It was one of the very few, or actually the first, big project ever begun by Virginia in the Western frontier, which is what they called the mountains. And of course, when the war began, the building of the asylum ceased. And in fact, the North held up the bank in Weston and took all of the funding that was supposed to finish the asylum. And it became Camp Tyler, a Union stronghold for most of the war. So its its whole history is very much connected with, with the Civil War. Thomas Story Kirkbride was a Quaker who imported a kind of Renaissance vision of mental health treatment from Europe. And he coined the term moral treatment. That was also going to be the title of the book at one point, mm. moral treatment. But it it really involved uh, humane treatment for the mentally ill, who until that time had been kept in basements or poorhouses or allowed to wander the street if they weren't violent. But he believed mental illness could be cured and the person would leave the asylum. And if they needed to come back at a future time, their problems resurfaced they would come back. He believed that people might need treatment more than once in their lives. And uh, I wanted to really think about and talk about the irony of this doctor experiencing and exhibiting and protecting people with moral treatment at a time when the war itself and the period of time after the war was, was su such a brutal time. I couldn't move him to that asylum. He was too old. So I invented a nephew of his whose last name is Story. Yes. It was very convenient that his real name, his real middle name was Story. Also, you know, I read several books about him and I borrowed a couple of events from his life for my Dr. Story, who's in his early 40s. But I don't want to say too much about that because I don't want to have any spoilers here. And that asylum is still there. So you toured it, and there's a wonderful photograph of Connelly's room and Eliza's room. It's in color on my website. They wouldn't they wouldn't do any color uh, photographs of any of the documents. But my website is www.janeannphillips.com, and I have the research there for 
really all my books. And that picture is much more beautiful in color. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a listing of all the reasons that people were institutionalized in the asylum, which exactly. there's like 80 or yeah. something. Well, let's talk because you're such a writer of language. And, and we talked a little bit about poetry at the beginning of the interview. And I know this is kind of a slippery topic to talk about, because how do you talk about being such a writer of language? But I'm wondering if there are things you can say, because capturing the voices of this time, and we should also say that it's told in six, I think, close third-person points of view. So capturing each one of these characters, and there's this wonderful character who I don't think we've mentioned yet, Weed, who would be a tricky character to write. He's a young boy living in the asylum with his own afflictions, and I wonder if we could just kind of unpack capturing some of these voices, keeping it within the time, keeping the characters distinctly sounding from each other, but building in all of these words and, you know, just the word buckboard is, you know, just not a word we use today. And so you had to find all of context and vernacular of the time while keeping the voices distinct. I don't know if there's a way to unpack all of that, but are there things you can say about how you went about that? Well, it's just sort of natural to me, I think, in the way I write. If you think about the film Rashomon, I love seeing things from different points of view, the same thing from different points of view, and scrambling time as each character might, so that each character opens the lens a little more for the reader. Um, I wouldn't say that Weed is afflicted at all. He is a, a child who was born in the asylum, as children were, especially before Dr. Story takes over, because, of course, people take advantage of each other in just about any situation unless there are guidelines and someone is strong enough to be in charge of the situation. Weed is a child whose mother gave birth to him in the asylum and, and then died. And I hope this isn't a spoiler, but there's a, a very interesting character called Mrs. Hexham, who is the cook of the asylum, but she also runs a lot of different things that are going on. And she has her own secrets. But when this little boy was orphaned, she sort of took charge of him. And she has kind of living in the in the kitchen, two or three children who are who, who are in this situation. And she believes that she gives them a much warmer and better upbringing than they would have in an, in an orphanage. So Weed is a child who's never been to school. <laughs> He's never lived anywhere but the asylum. He doesn't know anyone but Mrs. Hexham and the other children. He, But he's a very, very keen observer. And he thinks in a very sensual... I mean, one thing I, I've said in the past is that an outlaw character, that any child is is a kind of outlaw character who sees things without context. They mm. see things in a in a very direct way. And the language that that works in, in Wee's point of view is not his language necessarily, but it's the language that describes how he perceives things. So when you are immersing yourself in these people, I imagine that you're immersed in that time period through the research in such a deep way that you've absorbed all of the, the things they're seeing, the things they're surrounded by. And I imagine that's just research, research, research. 
The hope is definitely that the research is is so thorough that one doesn't have to think about it when you're inside the writing. I feel as though the sort of piece of my consciousness that was inside this book for so long was really there. That is, I had looked at so many photographs and so many films, uh, including, you know, contemporary films that visualize war, starting with Bambi. <laughs> and I had done so much reading about very specific things that I was I was able to just feel my way there. And the real trick is to sustain that sensibility for all the years that it takes to write the book. And for me, the book has to be powerful enough for me that I can enter it again and again, even after having to put it down for months or being sort of separated from it and then coming back together with it. I suppose that would have been one of the advantages of writing in the pandemic, because you're so cut off from the world at large that you could really stay centered in this and focused on this world. Yeah, I really think the pandemic, I was in a sort of space where I was finally able to finish the book, where I had been sort of stopped in a way with with trying to imagine how how it would end. But having all that time alone really helped me to visualize an ending that to me felt universal in a way, but also very, very specific to the book itself. Do you feel like you could have written this if you hadn't spent time living in West Virginia and Virginia in that that area? Do you feel like your oh, that's lived impossible. experience? Impossible to answer, but no, I feel as though um, we're very much formed by the place and the world and the culture in which we became aware of ourselves and which we have developed an identity. And that's probably around age 11, 12, 13. And of course, it continues after that. But I think that we first have a sense of ourselves as separate from our families, very much attached to our families and influenced by our families, but separate from them. I think that's why West Virginia has been a touchstone in almost all of my writing. Did you set out to answer any question for yourself? I hear a lot of writers say, I write to to learn something or I write to, about something I don't understand. And I was wondering if that was true for you and if this book or any of your other novels have either changed your understanding of something or given you more insight into the world at large, or is that kind of not the point? Well, I think each book truly deepens my perceptions because I'm I'm sort of pushed and, and led, led by a whisper, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> to just go forward in these different worlds. One reviewer mentioned the element of goodness inside the book as being something that really is is very specific and it's it's there. And the idea that the characters almost have a kind of clairvoyance amongst them. That's that's very subtle, but it's there. And and I think that people inside a a chaotic or emergency situation do develop as a means of survival, this almost clairvoyant way of thinking where they're, they're, they may all be very different and their perspectives are different, but they're working toward a solution. And th that strength is often powered by love. 
That's why I think in a lot of my books, I'm looking at a family. I'm looking at the generations that came before them. I think we do inherit the unresolved emotional dilemmas of our parents. They may not have names for us, that dilemma. But as we get older and we learn about our parents as characters, so to speak, how they grew up, what influenced them, what the t- what their times were, we begin to have a much deeper understanding of them. And we can kind of see the way that they've they've influenced us. Speaking of the this core of goodness in the novel, which I totally agree with, there's there's one character that I hope we can agree is is just a villain, and I won't give too much away about him particularly, but I'm wondering how much you allow him to stay villainous in your own mind, or if you imbue him with some backstory or humanity or something, because we get glimpses of, you know, there's, there's times he's not as terrible as other times, but he's, he's pretty terrible. When you're dealing with a villain as writer, if you kind of give him grace in your mind at certain times, or if you're able to just kind of keep him as the, the jerk he is. I think there have been in, in some of my other novels characters who are very damaged, who are so damaged that they damage others. They're like time bombs. I think of that character as an expression of his times, perhaps more than perhaps more so than any of the others. Uh, again, this is a little bit of a spoiler question, but I I didn't make a detailed backstory for him because he sort of remains a mystery except in the things he does and the ways he thinks and the ways he tries to control the world around him. He's a very dangerous character. And especially in situations in which there's a lot of chaos, you will find characters like him. But I think uh, though we don't find goodness in him, the goodness that surrounds and is inside other characters he tries to manipulate or influence is stronger than he is. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I once heard, I always attribute this quote to to, uh, Meryl Streep. I'm not sure if it's Meryl Streep, but something about she knows a secret about every one of her characters that she will never reveal to the audience and they will never know that drives who she is and how she plays the character. And I was kind of thinking about that with him and whether you know, or certainly he knows what that is that we will never know, but that it motivates all of his actions. And I think that's such a powerful tool, especially in film. It's harder to pull off in novels because the whole point is interiority, but having that withheld secret that. I think that's an interesting uh, concept, but it's very much an actor's concept in my way of thinking. He's lived so many lies and played so many roles that he no longer knows the difference between one lie and another. And he's very self-congratulatory, which is probably a facade, but yet he takes, uh, he seems to take great strength from it. Mm. You mentioned earlier that you rewrote the book three times, and I thought maybe we could just end on that process of revision for you and, and what that looks like. So you finished the draft, and I don't know if at that point you show it to readers, to your editor, your agent, and then well, I never out finished him. a draft that went through to the end because I I didn't have the end until, as I said, that period during the pandemic when I was 
I felt really alone. And uh, I guess that being so alone is is good for a writer, <laughs> but not not a happy circumstance. It really was just kind of finding my way to the characters as I felt they matched in the sense of a kind of jigsaw puzzle. And maybe that's my secret. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have readers beyond your agent and editor or specifically like sensitivity readers? I don't know if that's such a thing in historical fiction with, you know, people who have been through war or people inside us. I don't know if, if any of that applies, but who do you trust <laughs> to listen to through the process? I have um, a number of readers that I've shown my work to over the years, and they're mentioned in the acknowledgments of the, of the novel. Um, Knopf did have a sensitivity reader for this book. I mean, as I said, I, I published books after a period of years. It takes me so long to write them. I, I don't think the use of sensitivity readers was so common uh, when I published my last book, which was Quiet Dell in 2013. So this book was finished maybe two years before it actually came out. But by 2023, the use of sensitivity readers is very common. And Knopf did ask someone to read the book with a thought to how the characters were portrayed and the issues of war and race and well, so many issues involved in the book, and the sensitivity reader liked the book. But you never know how a book is going to be received, and I think it's really important for the writer to feel settled and to have a sort of feeling of completion that the book is exactly what you wanted to write before you give it to a publisher. Right. Have you had the same agent, agent publisher? Have you stayed with the same houses all the way through? No. I mean, I when I first started as a writer, I was with Seymour Lawrence, who was an imprint publisher who worked for several different publishers, but he had his own group of writers and he did all of his own foreign sales for those writers. He had a lot more to do with the way the books were launched. It was just a, to a totally different world. That was much more about the printed book than about online advertisements, which really is now, uh, I mean, Knopf doesn't even do ads anymore. And the idea is that people are going to learn about a book through little posts on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me at all, but that is the way it's done now. And that's why I'm really glad that interviewers like you are still talking to writers about books, because I, I think it's really hard to attract the kind of attention a book needs when you're only advertising on the internet. TikTok. I hear that's how the kids are learning about books now. So you just you just need to do a TikTok video. A TikTok yeah. video. <laughs> it's a new world. Well maybe I'll do that, but it might attract a attention I don't want. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm not sure your readership lies in TikTok. Well, is there advice, writing advice, living as a writer advice, any any of that that you can leave us with for your many decades of writing and publishing that might sustain us through these dark and difficult times, both as livers and the human condition and, and writers? Well, I, I think that we're in a time in which readers comprise a kind of medieval guild, which makes reading and books sound, I think, very sexy. That is, there was a time when only orders of religious 
uh, monks were writing illustrated religious texts, and they were the only ones reading them because most people couldn't read. And now we're in a world in which um, people can read, but their comprehension might not be the same. They might comprehend things in a different way. But the idea of holding a real book in your hands and reading it, there are just certain synapses and kind of understandings that that are deepest in that way, in the same way that if you write with your hand, it's different than if you're writing on a keyboard. I think those things are are so individual and so built into the human body, the human mind, that if you want to know what other people might not know, if you want to see things, if you want to get to the very origin of a story, you need to be a reader and to read constantly. And I think that's what leads most writers into writing. I'll give a little plug for, there was a recent Ezra Klein, actually, I think it was a rerun, but a recent Ezra Klein podcast on, this is your brain on deep reading. Mm -hmm. I forget who, I think it's Marianne Wolf is the guest, but talking about this very point of the pleasures of deep reading and how difficult it's become for all of us in this technological age and how it really changes your thinking and your way of being in the world to do that. More of this and more conversations like this, I think, are are really, really wonderful. Wonderful for the brain. Wonderful for my brain today. This was amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. That was Jane Ann Phillips. The book is Nightwatch. It is out and available now, published by Knopf. In addition to our Patreon page and uh, our bookshop.org page, you can always visit our websites, barbersispenonfire.com, mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can write to us at writersonwriting.com. Visit our website at writersonwriting.com to find archives of past shows and uh, more information about our show. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. His typewriter music is up on Spotify under Just My Type. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.